let's pray as we get into God's word. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for this precious, precious time. How wonderful it is to be together as a church to worship you. One Lord, one faith, one birth, one baptism, one spirit, one Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for the living word and for the written word now as we get back into Mark's gospel. And we pray that this would be a time of spiritual encouragement and refreshment and conviction and would serve to continue to sanctify and transform us into the likeness of Christ. Thank you, Father, that you are worthy. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for this time. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Let's turn to the Gospel of Mark. Mark chapter 14. And as you're turning there in your Bibles, it's a kind of uh, point of interest to consider some of the last meal requests in history. Kind of did a Google search, quick Google search. And uh, just a few last meals of some condemned criminals in history. We have that custom in our country that criminals who are on death row have that last request. Timothy McVeigh, who was known as the Oklahoma City bomber, for his last meal, he requested two pints of mint chocolate chip ice cream. Adolf Eichmann, he was one of the key organizers of the Holocaust. For his last meal, he requested a bottle of red wine. Another very evil, murderous man, John Wayne Gacy, he requested 12 fried shrimp, a bucket of KFC, French fries, and a pound of strawberries. Ted Bundy, probably most of us have heard of Ted Bundy, uh, notorious, infamous serial killer. He, um, he actually refused to make a, a special request for his last meal. So they gave him the standard Florida thing of steak and eggs and you know uh, toast and everything. Um, but it was reported that he didn't have a single bite of it. And um, some people think that he, he actually came to faith uh, before he was executed. But um, we don't know. I don't know. Uh, lastly, a guy named Victor Feguer. He was the last person to be executed in Iowa. He requested a single olive with the pit left in it. And uh, he had some weird idea about that pit being in his stomach and growing into something. But in any case, in our passage today from Mark's gospel, the Lord Jesus is with his disciples partaking in his last meal. And this last supper that he eats, one could argue, is the most important meal ever to be had in all of history. It's the Passover meal. He and the disciples are eating the night before he's crucified. And this supper was designed by God the Father to point to and exalt God the Son. The supper is a meal that proclaims the gospel. It's a display of God's grace and God's holiness. It's Jesus' last supper of his earthly life and the first Lord's table. That's the title of our sermon last week and, and today. And it signified the creation of a new spiritual covenant between God and believing sinners. 
Last Sunday, we saw in part one that this was a most significant time in history. The night before the Lord's crucified, he and the disciples are having Passover. They're observing Passover. And as we've seen and explained already, this Passover celebration, along with the unleavened bread, was the holiest and greatest feast of the Jewish year. We've read in Exodus, our scripture reading this morning, how this holiday commemorated the Jews' deliverance from slavery in Egypt. And just to reiterate Exodus 13, listen, verses 8 through 10 again. He says, you shall tell your son on that day, saying, it is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. And it shall serve as a sign to you on your hand and as a reminder on your forehead that the law of the Lord may be in your mouth. For with a powerful hand, the Lord brought you out of Egypt. Therefore, you shall keep this ordinance at its appointed time from year to year. And then just a few more verses from our reading, verses 14 through 16. Again, it shall be when your son asks you in time to come, saying, What is this? Then you shall say to him, With a powerful hand, Yahweh brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. It came about when Pharaoh was stubborn about letting us go, that the Lord, Yahweh, killed every firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of beast. Therefore I sacrifice to Yahweh the males, the first offspring of every womb, but every firstborn of my sons I redeem. Verse 16, so it shall serve as a sign on your hand as phylacteries on your forehead, for with a powerful hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt. So God commanded the Jews to celebrate this every year as a constant reminder, a constant annual reminder, great reminder of his amazing deliverance from their miserable situation. And as I just read, they were to teach the next generation, every next generation, every son, every daughter, every child, what happened so that they would all remember God's mighty work on their behalf and appreciate his goodness toward them. So the big idea for today, which is part two of what we started last week, um, different sermon theme from our, our previous passage, but it's all kind of uh, one, one section. But the Lord institutes communion, okay, also known as the Lord's table. He institutes it so that believers would continually remember him and to bring us into deeper spiritual unity with him and with each other. Okay, that's, the, that's the big idea. That's the sermon theme that I want us to take away today. And so in this Last Supper, the first Lord's table, we have Mark chapter 14. And our passage today is verses 22 to 31. And if you can, if you are able, please stand with me as I read God's precious word. Mark 14, verse 22 to 31. While they were eating, he took some bread, and after a blessing, he broke it and gave it to them and said, Take it. This is my body. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will never again drink of the fruit of the vine 
until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Verse 26, after singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because it is written, I will strike down the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I have been raised, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. But Peter said to him, Even though all may fall away, yet I will not. And Jesus said to him, Truly I say to you, that this very night, before a rooster crows twice, you yourself will deny me three times. But Peter kept saying insistently, even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And they all were saying the same thing also. Please be seated. We have two main outline points today in your bulletin. And let me just say from the outset, uh, the first of the points is, um, how shall I put it, long and lovely. And the second point is short and sweet. Okay, So I just want to uh, give you the, that layout uh, from, the, from the beginning. Okay? The picture in the supper is verses 22 to 25, which is the first point. And um, the parallel passages, again, are found in Matthew 26 and Luke 22. And then we have some information in John 13 as well. But the picture in the supper, and we have uh, many things to say through this, and we can't say everything there is to say about the Lord's Supper. But under this broad subject of the picture in the supper, last week we had the preparations, right? And then the predicament before or at the supper, and now we have the picture in the supper. And mind you, at this point, it's apparent that Judas is not with them. He's gone to do his dirty work of betrayal, and we read about that in John chapter 13. So it's now Jesus with the faithful 11 disciples continuing the Passover meal. And over the years, uh, traditions formed, and a, a liturgy developed on the elements of the Passover meal, this Seder. Okay, that word Seder, you've probably heard of it. It, it simply means order, okay, an order of service. And so the Passover meal has a specific order in which the food was eaten and prayers were recited and songs sung. And I don't have time to get into all the specifics and the meanings of each of those things, but we should understand that there was a meaning attached to each of those elements which helped the people remember what God had done in the past, their deliverance out of Egypt. And it also was to show them what God would do in the future anticipating the coming redemption with the promised Messiah. And so, you know, I had some things here about this, what they did, and, you know, they sang some, some psalms, uh, the Hallel psalms, the Praise the Lord psalms, Psalm 113 to 118, and there was like four main parts of the, of the meal, and it each meant a different thing, and the child would ask a question, and the father would lead it as the spiritual head, the spiritual leader of the family, and he would be orchestrating all of this. And so there were specific instructions and drinking of the wine and the cups. But um, I just mention all that because normally this was a worshipful meal celebration with the family and the father's leading. But here in Mark, we see that Jesus is having Passover with who? With his disciples, okay, not physical family. And I believe that's for a reason. In this Last Supper, 
which he's turning into the first Lord's table, he's transforming this memorial into one that goes beyond the physical family. It's specifically actually for spiritual family, his adopted family, those who believe in him as Savior and Lord. It's for the, the church. It's for the church family. And so we're going to get into that a little bit more later, but I wanted to just have that in our minds. And in Matthew 26, parallel passage, verse 26, it's almost the same as Mark's account here, except he says, take, eat, this is my body. And then the cup, drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for forgiveness, for the forgiveness of sins. Okay, but Luke 22 adds these words. Do this in remembrance of me. Okay, and if there's a parallel passage outside of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we know it, right? It's in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And that would be uh, Paul's uh, account of things. And he writes there that Jesus also said, do this in remembrance of me. So a couple of basic first things we should understand about the Lord's Supper, okay, this Lord's Table, communion. First, Jesus commands believers only to partake of it. It's a special ordinance given by Christ to the church. The church is the body of believers, saved people, people who, who trust in Jesus Christ for their salvation and forgiveness. It should not be taken by non-believers. And some pastors and churches would argue that you should be a baptized believer, actually. And then others say also that you should be an official member of the church that you're attending. Okay, I don't necessarily go that far, but I do believe that observing communion regularly, as we do here at Faith Bible Church, obediently, as Jesus instructed, it points all of us, it points everyone who partakes in communion to baptism, okay, which is the other ordinance that Christ gave to the church. It points everyone to that. and also points everyone to the instruction to commit to church membership. Okay, it, it sort of just keeps, us, uh, keeps it in our, our minds, it keeps us in our consciousness that these are um, things that follow being a Christian. Okay, it doesn't save you, but once you are saved, these are things that you are to be doing. So second thing, second basic thing, is that, that part I mentioned already, do this in remembrance of me. He ordained it so that we as believers would remember him. This is part of the big idea, basic thing, but what are we supposed to remember? That's the question. Okay, well, it's what Jesus says in the text here in Mark, what the parallel passages say in Matthew and Luke, and what's included in 1 Corinthians 11. He wants us to remember him and his sacrificial death. Him who redeemed us and provided for us the way of escape from judgment and forgiveness of our sins and eternal life. In short, he wants us to remember the gospel, who he is and what he has accomplished on our behalf. Just like the Israelites were to observe Passover and unleavened bread every year. And they were to do that to remember and celebrate God's deliverance of them from their miserable state under Pharaoh in Egypt. We as Christians are to observe communion regularly to remember and celebrate God's rescue of us from slavery to our sin and Satan and judgment and death. 
And so the bread and the cup are pictures which represent the body and blood of our Savior to help us, to help us remember and celebrate and appreciate what Christ has done for us in his sufferings and death. And I think we as believers know this, but not everybody may be entirely sure. But let me, let me bring this up. We have, in general, at least I have, a tendency to forget things easily. I mean, even the good things, okay, the best things in life. Most people tend to take things for granted. I think it's in our human nature, probably part of the effects of the fall, okay, maybe even our sinful nature. We take good things, the blessings in life, for granted. Think about a new house okay, or a new place that you just moved into back when your, your house was new or a new car when you first purchased your car, or even the, the sunny weather here in California. How soon do we forget? How easily do we forget? How quickly do we start to complain about things? I remember back in our seminary days when we, we lived in a, a studio apartment. It was literally one room, and Philip and Phoebe were, were born. Phoebe was just born as I started seminary, and we lived in this cramped little place in Silver Lake. One room, and then like a little over a year later, God gave us the provision of uh, apartment managing. And we moved into a two-bedroom apartment, and it was like a mansion in this, this huge place. And uh, we couldn't believe it. We were so happy. We were so thankful. And um, sad to say that it wasn't too long after that that we started grumbling about, oh, it doesn't have this. At least me. Oh, it doesn't have that. Oh, I wish it had this. Right? It wasn't too long after that. Like the Israelites, after leaving Egypt, how soon, how quickly we forget and start complaining. It didn't take long for them, right? Red Sea hadn't even parted yet. Let me just give you another quick example, dear folks. How about our spouses, okay, our husbands, our wives? Many times we take them for granted, don't we? Or worse, we find things to grumble about and be unhappy about rather than thank God for them rather than realize that actually no one on this earth is closer to you or loves you more than this person. And so we shouldn't take them for granted or have a complaining spirit or raise a ruckus about things. And for others, this may apply maybe to our children, our parents, our siblings. You can extend that to church family, taking one another for granted. That old expression, familiarity breeds contempt, has a ring of truth to it. Right? We take good things, even the best things, for granted. And of course, the best thing in all of life is where all of this is headed, right? Is God himself, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit who's in us, the giver of every good and perfect gift, the source of all the blessings and joy and satisfaction and gifts that we have, we have a tendency to forget him, to take him for granted. Okay? Even though we are completely dependent upon him for everything that we have in life, okay? every single blessing we possess, okay, including the next breath that we take in, is from God. And we forget far too easily. We complain much too quickly. 
Anyone complain about the rain this, this past day? Wow, I wasn't expecting that. It's freezing, <laughs> right? It's actually getting a little warm in here. Phil, if you could turn the heat down a little bit. <laughs> uh, hopefully I'm not just speaking for myself here. But anyway, <laughs> we forget so easily. And so Jesus, the Lord, says, do this in remembrance of me. Beloved church, this Lord's table, this communion, is so that we would remember our precious Savior and all that he's accomplished to grant us the gift of eternal life. And in doing so, that our love for him would deepen and our joy in him would increase. John Newton, the writer of Amazing Grace, that wonderful hymn that we sang at Patrick's memorial service, near the end of John Newton's life, his friend William Jay visited him. And at that point, Newton was barely able to speak. But he said to his friend, my memory is nearly gone, but I remember two things, that I am a great sinner and that Christ is a great savior. Do this in remembrance of me. So the next thing that I want to bring out uh, from our text today in this point is, what is this? He says, do this in remembrance of me. What is happening? He says, take it, take, eat, this is my body. Okay, and the cup, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. And so certain denominations, certain churches, certain people take this very, very literally. It's called transubstantiation. And they believe that upon consecration, when the priest blesses the bread and the, the wine, that it becomes the real body and blood of Christ. Okay, that word trans, it means change. Okay, thus, transubstantiation is the mystical change of substance from bread to flesh, from drink, from wine to blood. They take that very literally, and obviously, most famously, it's the Roman Catholic Church that teaches that in error. It's taking Jesus' words way too, way too literally. It's like when Jesus says, I am the door, that he's saying that there's hinges and, you know, when it goes back, he, he creaks or something, right? Or I am the vine. He's not an actual vine. This is figurative, metaphoric language. And when, even when he says, I'm the shepherd, he's actually a carpenter and he's the savior. But, but figuratively, he's our good shepherd who leads and loves his sheep. So we understand this symbolically. Okay, the elements represent Christ and his sacrifice for us. The bread is a symbol of Christ's body, a symbol of himself. Like the wine is a symbol of his blood. So we partake it in remembrance of his death and not as if we're sacrificing him again and again. Okay, that, that, is, that is erroneous, false teaching. Listen, Hebrews 10, verses 11 and 12 says, Every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God. Hebrews 10, 11 and 12. 
Romans 6, verse 10 also. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. Now you can go to Hebrews 9, 26, Hebrews 10, verse 10, but they all are saying the same thing. Once for all sacrifice. And so, as we partake of communion, remembering Christ, we individually and collectively as a church proclaim and participate in the benefits of his death. Once for all, death. And so, the big idea once again, Jesus institutes the Lord's table, communion, so that we would remember him and to bring us into deeper spiritual unity, fellowship, relationship with him and with one another. And that brings me to our, our next sub-point here. Okay? What are the spiritual benefits of communion? The spiritual blessings of communion, of partaking in communion. L- let me just read to you 1 Corinthians 10, verse 16. You can jot it down. But Paul writes, right before that Lord's Supper chapter, chapter 11, right? 1 Corinthians 10, 16. Is not the cup of blessing which we bless a sharing in the blood of Christ? Is not the bread which we break a sharing in the body of Christ? This indicates that when we share in the Lord's table, when we partake of communion, we as believers receive the benefits of Christ. The blessings of Christ. Don't get me wrong. For certain... He is already ours by faith, is he not? When we're saved, he's all ours. He abides in us, we abide in him. Praise the Lord. But when you receive the elements, the bread and the cup, you receive him all over again. Okay, as I've mentioned, he's not sacrificed every time. Again and again, we take it, every time we take it. But partaking of communion serves to support and strengthen our faith. Okay, that's what he wants us to remember and receive. It's proclaiming to God and to yourself and to everyone that he is the one who saved you. We're being spiritually renewed in that proclamation. We're renewed in our faith, in our souls, and it strengthens our unity in Christ, with Christ, and with each other. To quote Pastor Bobby Jameson, he asks, does that mean that you don't possess those benefits before and apart from the Lord's Supper? It's a good question, right? Well, not at all. Think about, he gives an example, what happens in preaching. You show up on Sunday morning already trusting in Christ, right, if you're a believer. But when the pastor proclaims Christ from Scripture, the gospel comes to you again in power. In that moment, you embrace Christ anew. You trust him more fully. You submit to him more earnestly. You experience forgiveness and peace with God more intensely. Something analogous happens when believers partake in the Lord's Supper, end quote. And so in the Lord's table, believers receive Christ's blessings and benefits anew. You and I are renewing our commitment to him and to each other. And this is that unifying aspect of communion, sharing in the bread, sharing in the cup, sharing in this ordinance of Christ. So let's consider that level of unity and intimacy, joining in the oneness that we have that's represented with these symbols that Jesus uses. 
Like, think about that. It's as if we're identifying with him so closely as taking in his body, taking in his sacrifice, so spiritually in union with him that when we take the elements, it's as if we're consuming or taking in or receiving his body and blood. Okay? It's not, again, it's not literal, but it's not to be taken lightly when we think about it. The elements, the bread and the cup, they're pictures, as this broad point is trying to express. They're pictures of his sacrificial suffering death that he wants us to remember. It's the one ordinance, along with baptism, that he wants the church to practice corporately, to memorialize together regularly, to practice and celebrate specifically It's a spiritual connection and intimacy that he wants us to experience with him and with one another. And that brings us to, we're almost done with this point, okay? The new covenant, the new covenant. Verse 23 through 25, he takes the cup, gives thanks, says this is the blood of the covenant which is poured out for many. This is my blood of the covenant, okay? So it's referring to the wine in the cup. Jesus calls it my blood of the covenant, again, symbolically. Luke 22, verse 20, he says, this is the new covenant in my blood. Just as Paul says, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-five, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. And Jesus' death will at long last bring God's promised new covenant to life. Centuries before, God had promised to make a new covenant with his people. And if you want to turn with me, in Jeremiah chapter 31 is where that is found. Verses 31 to 34, I'm just going to read it. Jeremiah chapter 31. Centuries before, Jeremiah the prophet writes, Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord, Yahweh. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Verse 34, they will not teach again, each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin. I will remember no more. Wow. So in this new covenant, we see that God will write his law on the people's hearts, transforming them from the inside out so that they love what he loves and they do what he says. They would all know him from the least to the greatest. He would forgive their sins fully and finally, remembering them no more. All this, Jesus says here in Mark, is now starting to happen through his death. Okay, God's new covenant promises are going to be sealed in Jesus' blood. This is the new covenant in my blood. And again, it was symbolic of his blood, which would be spilled, poured out the next day when he's crucified. 
And this is to cut the covenant, right? The new covenant in his blood. Blood was necessary to establish any covenant. Jesus said the covenant refers to the new covenant in my blood. So the old covenant was ratified with animal blood. But the new covenant was ratified, ushered in with the blood of Christ. And just by the way, um, the new covenant that Jesus announces, um, it begins to be exercised here. Okay? Just as he's having this first Lord's table with his disciples. And the spiritual aspects of it are realized by all believers, okay? Jew and Gentile believers. And this is in the church era. It's begun to take effect as Jesus ratifies, establishes, ushers in, inaugurates with his work on the cross. And as we touched on during our eschatology series not too long ago, um, the new covenant will be realized fully by the nation of Israel in the end times. As all of God's promises from the Abrahamic covenant, the Davidic covenant, to the new covenant are fulfilled in the last days during the time of the tribulation and then Jesus' second coming when he comes as king and he brings in the millennial kingdom, that thousand-year reign on earth. So when he says of the bread, this is my body, and of the cup, this is my blood of the covenant, he's making that bread and wine a sign of the new covenant. He's connecting them to God's Jeremiah 31 promise, kind of like we connect a, a ring to a wedding vow. Okay, again, Jameson writes, when you give that ring to your wife, it's like saying, this ring is a sign of my promise to love you and cherish you, to care for and provide for you. When you see it on your finger, remember my commitment to you. Okay, young, young folks here, just uh, remember that, okay? So the bread and cup are signs which point to God's wonderful promises and blessing. And just as the Passover was a memorial to be repeated regularly, Jesus turns this Last Supper into a new memorial, the first Lord's table. On the cross, God saved the people for himself through sacrificing his son, and he frees them from their sin. He makes them his own. On the night before Jesus goes to the cross in that great work of salvation, of deliverance, of redemption, of forgiveness, he gave them a meal to celebrate this. And lastly, he says, when you do it, you proclaim it until when? Until he comes, right? I just kind of mentioned. This is the last thing here before we get to the last short and sweet point. The future, verse 25, back to Mark 14. He says, truly I say to you, I will never again drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God of utmost importance. Okay, truly, I say to you, Jesus lets the 11 know that he will not partake of the Passover wine again until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. He says the same thing of the bread in Luke 22. Okay, what assurance of God's kingdom coming. It's coming, disciples. And assurance for the disciples that Jesus, the king, is going to return. He's going to be back one day to celebrate this meal again. And I believe that he's referring to the millennial kingdom, thousand-year earthly reign after his second coming. And um, you can jot down Ezekiel 45, 
verses 18 through 25, uh, which we don't have time to get into. Actually, Ezekiel chapters 43 to 45 give us information on all of that. But until he returns, he wants his church to celebrate this, this memorial that not only looks back at what he's done, but proclaims it until he comes. So we are to look ahead in anticipation of that glorious day as well. So verse 26, chapter 14, Mark. After singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. It was kind of a bridge verse to get us to the next section, and this is what happens in this narrative. Singing is part of that Passover meal liturgy, like I mentioned. The Psalms 113 to 118, praises to the Lord. They are songs of praises. They're going out to the Mount of Olives, heading towards the Garden of Gethsemane. This is the same area where Jesus taught the Olivet Discourse, uh, like I mentioned before. But it leads us to verses 26 to 31, the, the predictions after the supper, the predictions after the supper. And I said this was going to be short and sweet. It will be short, but actually it's not very sweet what happens here. Jesus says to them, you will all fall away, all fall away. And what an irony, right? The Lord institutes his table, communion, for the purpose of bringing believers into closer fellowship with him and with one another. And right after he does this, he predicts, he prophesies, they're all going to scatter. And isn't it interesting that Jesus doesn't only predict what they're going to do, but he gives the reason, right? They're all going to abandon him. And he says there in verse 27, because it is written, I will strike down the shepherd and the sheep shall be scattered. Their abandonment of him is fulfilling a prophecy from long ago, about 500 years. Um, he's referring to Zechariah 13, verse 7. Zechariah 13, verse 7. Zechariah was writing in uh, post-exilic times, around 480 B.C., so roughly 500 years before Jesus says this. But Zechariah 13, 7 says, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, and against the man my associate, declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd that the sheep may be scattered. And the gist is that Jesus, the shepherd of the sheep, is going to be struck down, delivered, handed over, taken down, destroyed. And the sheep, his disciples, his followers, are going to scatter. They're going to flee. Jesus predicts this will happen, just as Zechariah the prophet wrote. But in verse 28, he has another prediction. He says, but after I have been raised, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. He's been telling them this, hasn't he? But he tells them again, another prediction. He's going to be raised from death. This is resurrection. And then after that, he's going to travel ahead of them to Galilee. Let's look at verses 29 to 31 quickly. Because, of course, we have the denials. The denials. Peter said to him, even though all may fall away, yet I will not. Here comes passionate Peter, right? Passionate, yet prideful. Zealous, but naive. He thinks he won't abandon Jesus. No matter what. All these other guys, they're going to take off, but not me, Lord. I'm going to stick it out. I ain't no coward. I ain't no traitor. But Jesus' famous prediction begins with that same sobering statement to Peter. Truly, I say to you, this very night, 
before a rooster crows twice, you yourself will deny me three times. Dear people, this is not the words that you want to hear from the Lord, especially after you've just pledged your undying, unwavering loyalty. Jesus said it's going to happen, and it's happening soon, tonight, tonight. And you won't just deny me one time. Okay, before the rooster crows twice, you're going you're to deny me three times. But Peter insists, keeps that mouth going, right? He keeps insisting. No way, Lord, I'm with you all the way, all the way to the death. You say you're going to die? Well, then so will I. I'll never, ever deny you. And incredibly, all the rest of them were saying the same thing. But as we'll see, their abandonment of Jesus will soon come. For our transition into communion, our time at the Lord's table, we're reminded of our big idea today. I do have one more thing to say. But the big idea, believers would continually remember him and to bring us into deeper fellowship, relationship with him, unity with him and with each other. So, I, I do regularly try to remind you when we come to the Lord's table, like what should we be thinking or having in our minds or in our hearts and our spirits? Um, and just the quick things were to, to make sure to look up. We look up to God who provided redemption for us and his son. Look back, as Jesus said, remember him. Remember Jesus, our precious Savior, and his atoning death for us and his sacrifice and suffering on the cross. Look ahead at Christ's return, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes every time we partake. And so we're anticipating this future glorious time. And I also remind us to look inward. Because 1 Corinthians 11 um, just says to examine ourselves, our own hearts, our own lives. And so let me add to that as we wrap up here and head into our time at the table. Um, to also look around you. Okay, we've said a lot about the church. We've said a lot about the, the purpose and reason for this. Look at one another, our church family. Okay, this is our meal, right? The, the vegans have their meal, and okay, we, we have our meal. Um, this is the Lord's table. It's for the church. So I don't mean to offend any vegans out there. But this is to bring us into deeper spiritual unity with our Savior and with one another. So partaking in this precious time together, listen, it, it seals our fellowship with one another and with Christ. It brings the church together, okay, making many members into one. So it's not just this private, individual, separate devotional experience. Okay, it's not just for, for me or for you. But it is communion, okay, the community of the church, the unity of believers, the body of saints. Yes, we are to come individually before the Lord in confession of sin and making sure we're repentant, make sure we're taking the elements in a prepared, worshipful manner. But a big part of that 1 Corinthians 11 warning is, is about taking communion in a proper manner in regards to their treatment of one another. Okay, I, I feel like I don't, I don't bring that out enough. So just 
listen to these verses from 1 Corinthians 11. Okay? And it's before the verses that we usually go to as we um, actually observe the Lord's table together. Leading into that, verses 17 to 22, Paul writes this. But in giving this instruction, I do not praise you because you come together not for the better, but for the worse. It's, it's a little bit of a reproof to them. He says, for in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that divisions exist among you. And in part, I believe it. There must also be factions among you so that those who are approved may become evident among you. Therefore, when you meet together, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in your eating, each one takes his own supper first, and one is hungry and another is drunk. What? Do you not have houses in which to eat and drink? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? In this, I will not praise you. And then that's verse 23, right? For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread, and so on, okay? So we should really um, just examine ourselves in, in all areas, but take these regular, at least monthly, here at FBC, these times of communion to consider if you have any sins against each other in the church, to confess them. If there's any breach in the body that needs healing or repair, okay, listen, this serves to protect the unity and the purity of our church body. Someone wisely said once a while back in conversation as we were talking about ministry life, they said, keep short accounts. Keep short accounts. You must have a heart of grace and forgiveness with one another and make amends quickly with one another as we, as we live and serve and minister together and as we come to the Lord's table. Okay, sometimes this might even mean just a, a short, hushed conversation with someone before church okay, during fellowship time or whenever. I'm sorry, I shouldn't have said such and such thing to you last week at Bible study. Okay, it was not edifying. Please forgive me. It could be something as, as short as that. As we are faithful to our Lord, we should rejoice at the unity he provides through these precious times of communion. His bloody body and blood seals this unity in diversity that we have together as a church. Once again, many members, one body. How precious. We are yet many, yet one in Christ. Okay, so any differences that we have, the Corinthians had many divisions and strife and factions, right? Any differences that we might have to, that seek to divide us, remember, they're nothing compared to the greatness of the Savior's atoning work and his shed blood for us on the cross for our sins. And he did it to save us and to unite us to him and to one another. So we partake of one bread. We all receive the same Savior. Our division should be small compared to this. Our differences, they should be small compared to that. So let's remember as we approach the table, even this moment, that the same Jesus who saved you has saved all your brothers and sisters in Christ. 
sitting next to you, sitting by you, sitting around you, and let us rejoice over our church family, okay? So I'm going to invite Joe Sr. to come, and um, Philip, you can help with that once again, but we are going to come and take of the elements if we are prepared and able. Before we do, let me, let me pray, and uh, we're going to sing a song as we, we take the, the elements. But Father, thank you for giving us this clear picture and helping us to remember. We are so forgetful, God. We're so leaky. I'm that way for sure. We tend to take things for granted. I pray, God, that we would never, never take Christ for granted. The beauty and glory and wonder of our Lord and Savior, the one who rescued us from our sins and given us that free gift of eternal life and doing all the work for us. So all that we need to do is throw ourselves upon him in faith. We thank you, God, that you have given us such a, a time and such an ordinance, knowing us and knowing that as we do this, spiritually we become closer to you and it serves to bring us together even as a church family, as brothers and sisters in Christ. And I pray that as we take it now, God, it would serve that very end. We praise you, Lord, for all of these things and for this time we're about to have. May it be pleasing and honoring to you. In Christ's name, amen. <laughs>